just to remind you how we got started on this way back in Lent when I stumbled across the word pleroma, fullness, in John's prologue. Uh, you, you might uh, remember there that John says that Christ is full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, he says, we have all received uh, grace upon grace or one grace after another. And I was intrigued with that word fullness because uh, immediately it reminded me of, the, of two verses in Colossians where it says that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily. And then I started taking a closer look at the word and the meaning of the word and then discovered um, that it was uh, to be found kind of salted through the text of the book of Colossians. Uh, even in this passage that uh, we've uh, read this morning, uh, Paul's objective for the Colossians in verse 2, uh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full. You see that word full there again. Uh, we constantly stumble across the word full, fully, fullness in the book of Colossians. And Paul is telling us that this fullness, and we, we kind of use that as a jumping off point, uh, Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, in which he uses the word fullness better than 50 times in the first few pages of the book. Um, fullness seems to be what people are missing in their lives. Uh, our, our lives are often uh, characterized by barrenness and lack. Uh, a lack of richness. We, we seem to exist in an ongoing kind of spiritual poverty. And Paul is telling us that fullness, richness, uh, is to be found in Christ. And that's the message of the gospel. That's the message of Christianity. Is that uh, we hear it interpreted in many different ways. Uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the first spiritual law, right? Uh, in other words, Christianity assumes that without Christ, your life will not be as full, as rich, as filled out, as full-orbed as God originally intended. So, um, in response to um, Peggy's song, Is That All There? Not Peggy Wright. Uh, Peggy's song, Is That All There Is? We say, no, 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 there, there's more to living um, than uh, fear and pessimism. We, saw, we heard it in a text in Genesis chapter 3, um, fallen man, his first instinct is, I am afraid of life. I have become afraid of life, Adam is saying. I have become... Uh, sensitive to my vulnerabilities, just living, just walking, hiding is what I do now. And so uh, the gospel of Christ, of course, calls people out of their fear, calls them out of their shadows, and introduces them into the glorious light of the gospel that shines in the face of Jesus Christ.
So here we are. Uh, I want to, the, the Lord willing, spend today and maybe the next few Sundays uh, on a phrase that I'm borrowing from, borrowing from uh, William Barclay, and that phrase is the marks of a faithful church. The marks of a faithful church. And uh, you you might overlook these marks or characteristics. If you look at the end uh, of the book of Colossians, if you go back just a few pages to the left, uh, Paul says at the end of Galatians chapter uh, 6, he says um, in verse 17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul physically displayed the wounds, and we saw this when we took a look at his, his conversion, um, his philosophy of ministry, the reality of what he had to face. Paul bore on his body the physical scars of his devotion to Christ. And in the same way, uh, today, the church, the body of Christ, displays um, what uh, Barclay refers to as the marks of a faithful church. The marks of a faithful church. So if you look at this text with me, um, th- this is the, the struggle, love struggle. Again, that was a, a phrase we borrowed from our Barclay last week. Paul is struggling Uh, The end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, we know that he's in prison. Uh, We know that the outcome for uh, his trial and sentencing does not look good. He is prevented from uh, dealing face-to-face with these people that he has come to love. He's come to know them through their pastor, Epaphras, and he is struggling, you can imagine, uh, in a Roman prison, uh, tradition tells us uh, that he was chained to two guards. Uh, tradition also tells us that those two guards were converted to Christianity. <laughs> Isn't that something? I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a wonderful story, evangelistically speaking. But could you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul? How many know that if you were chained to the Apostle Paul, you were going to hear about Jesus one way or the other? So Paul is, is in fact, struggling. He's struggling, uh, if not spiritually, he's struggling emotionally, mentally, physically. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle. It's, not, it's just not a little something that came up that, uh, you know, give me a couple of days, I'll get over it. It's a great struggle. It is for them. It is for those at Laodicea. That's actually the way you're supposed to pronounce it, Laodicea. Um, And for all who have not seen me face to face, well, guess what? We're in the crowd in verse 1. We have not seen Paul face to face. And yet, in so many ways, we have benefited from his struggles, his great struggles uh, 2,000 years ago. Every time we read one of the books that Paul wrote, we benefit from it. Now, 
What is his expectation of the church? You might miss this in the text, um, but it's clear that he is uh, outlining here a very high standard that should be um, the, the, the consummate uh, objective and goal of any church. First of all, he says that their hearts may be encouraged. So Barclay calls this a church of courageous hearts, a church of courageous hearts. Their hearts may be encouraged. Secondly, being knit together in love. So the second mark of the church would be a church in which the members are knit together in love. We, we ended last week with the statement that when love dies, the church dies. We know this. Uh, we, we may have been members of an assembly, hopefully not right now, that we may have been members of an assembly where uh, assembly life, life in the sheepfold became harsh. Uh, it became mechanical. Uh, people were engaged to some degree, but not with their whole hearts. They didn't have that encouragement of heart thing wasn't going on. Uh, we may be acquainted with what it is to attend a loveless church. And what uh, Barclay is telling us is that a loveless church will soon become a lifeless church. Even as we have grown smaller, I think that in many ways we have grown larger, encouraging, and being knit together, being sewn together in love. You may disagree with that, and that's not to say that we don't have uh, bumps in the road and potholes in any life, in any church. But nonetheless, that is, Paul says, this should be your worthy objective. Courageous hearts, hearts uh, knit together in love. And thirdly, he says, uh, Barclay says, a church equipped with every kind of wisdom. So we see this, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In whom, in Christ, he's, he spoke of this mystery before, twice in chapter 1. In verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, uh, I, I was chosen by God to preach the gospel, uh, to make known among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ, and here he has which is Christ in you. Here in chapter 2, he simply says, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, look at verse 3 with me. You might want to underline the words hidden, wisdom, and knowledge. The word translated for hidden there is apocryphos. Apocryphos. Uh, we get the word apocrypha from it. Uh, most people don't realize, but when the King James Version of the Bible was first published, 
1611, it included the intertestamental books, 14, I think, all together, known as the Apocrypha. In the 400-year period uh, between, uh, before John the Baptist showed up on the scene there, there was what is traditionally referred to as 400 years of silence between the prophet Malachi and the coming of St. John the Baptist. Uh, we, but nonetheless, life and history continued in those 400 years, and the Apocrypha, the books of the Apocrypha, fill in that they're known as intertestamental history between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, they were not regarded by those who read uh, the King James Version of the Bible in 1611. They were not regarded on the same level as the 66 books that we've come to know as the Old Testament and New Testament. But they were considered to add valuable information as to what happened in those 400 years. So interesting today, if you, talk, if you happen to talk to a person who just believes that they're King James Version only Bible people, you might ask them if their copy of the King James Version contains the Apocrypha because to be a truly King James Version, old school 1611, by the way, King James, and if you can look it up, you can look it up online. I won't go into the sultry details. Uh, King James, who published the, under his authority, the King James Version of the Bible, that's why it was called. It's always good if you're going to, if you're in the king's kingdom to name a book after him, right? King James Version of the Bible. But King James um, was a little, uh, he had a few uh, moral uh, quandaries himself. Those things you might point out. If you're a real old school 1611 King James Version person, do you have the Apocrypha in your Bible? They will say no. And they will say Apocrypha what? Apocryphos. So uh, Apocrypha came to mean um, that which was less than true, but something that uh, let you in on what otherwise would be hidden or secret. So a good way to understand the word apocryphos, hidden from the common gaze. Now the common gaze is what rules in our culture right now. We scroll through Facebook. We run through Instagram. The vast majority of my 30,000 or so emails I have one account, one stupid Ellis at gmail.com. The other one is Alan Agrowl at gmail.com. The vast majority of them I have never opened. Spam, advertising, stuff I subscribe to that I'm no longer interested in, right? Uh, so we just, we just roll down through our, how many do this? Your email list, and then you open the ones that are from people that you know or might be interested something you ordered, right? But probably for everyone that you open, there may be, well, in my case, 20 or 30 that you don't open. The culture of the common gaze, that's, that's what we look at. People do not examine things. People do not read. 
Uh, I was telling you about on Andon's eighth grade page, they asked him, where do you expect to be in 10 years? He said, I expect to be in college, and it was spelled C-O-L-L-A-G-E. And so I kind of brought that up, and Carrie told me, yes, there were teachers that approved those um, displays before they were printed and published. Okay, so we got teachers in middle school that think collage, college, it's all the same. What does it matter? Or teachers that say, oh, the kid spelled it that way, so who was I to correct them? You see what I'm saying? The culture of the common gaze. Paul is calling the Colossian church to examine the claims of Christ because they are apocryphos. They, uh, remember when Jesus told his disciples, consider, he said, don't be anxious for your life. Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin not, and yet, look, how my heavenly Father cares for them. Right? If you see a field of wildflowers growing, immediately that verse comes to my mind because I think this is a time not just for the common gaze. This is, in the original line, this is a time to slow down and actually look at and drink in what I see before me because there is a lesson to be learned. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have life everlasting, is preceded by the story of Moses and Aaron building the brass serpent, mounting it on a pole. The story was, from the Old Testament, whoever looked upon it would live. Do you remember that? Whoever looked upon it would live. That, again, communicates the idea it was just not a glancing gaze. It's not like sh- strolling through my emails or my Facebook. And, you know, we go through Facebook and we say, oh, yeah, that's typical of that person. I'm not, I'm not reading that. Yeah. Oh, that person over here, yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm going to hide them for a while. So it, it wasn't to the person who just had a glancing look at the brass serpent on lifted up. It was to the person who fastened their gaze on it. This is, this is the secret, Paul is saying. But it is, it is a secret that has been revealed. But if you're just kind of ancillarily, I don't know if that's a word, ancillarily involved, if you're somewhat removed from it by several degrees, if it really doesn't interest you, then you will never see the treasure, you will never possess the treasures. Look at it again, verse three, the treasures in whom are hidden all the treasures of what? Wisdom. So so the word there is Sophia. Sophia, a, a philosopher, we say philosopher, but a philosopher, philo is the Greek word for love. Uh, Sophia's 
Sophie is, again, the, the Greek word for wisdom. A philosopher is a lover of wisdom. He says, all the treasures, it's a fantastic uh, verse, actually, in whom, in Christ, are hidden from the common gaze, Paul is saying, all, not just some, not the best, not most, all the treasures of wisdom, Sophia, and knowledge, and the word there for knowledge is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. So we don't, we don't, uh, the English word, no, we don't say canal, do we? <laughs> because we learned if, if we had good teachers in the third grade, the, t- the teacher told us and said, the K is silent. Oh, so we pronounce it now? No, you, no, you, N-O, you pronounce it K-N-O-W. No. And we're like, English is a weird language. There are, there are more phrases like that in English from what I've told than any other, other language. Gnosis. So G-N-O-S-I-S, the G is silent. So, so listen to uh, what Barclay has to say here. He says, Gnosis, we don't say gnosis. Uh, gnosis is the power almost intuitive and instinctive to grasp the truth when we see it and hear it. Now, in our 21st century culture, when we hear hear the word knowledge, we immediately think of information. We think of education. Uh, We go and talk to somebody who has a master's degree or doctorate in something, and we say, wow, they know a lot, right? That, that's a knowledgeable person. Uh, when Christy and I were, were uh, speaking with her surgeon a few days ago, um, you could just tell that this was a, a person, all, all she does, I think, is breast surgery, that was totally immersed in her craft. And so I had some questions that I, I wanted answer. You know, I said, well, I, I read somewhere that, that breast cancer in older women, women usually move slower. And she says, that's correct. Isn't it wonderful when you have questions that you can find a knowledgeable, a person who has been educated, this is the way we look at it, who an intellectually stout person who can answer your question. Well, are there any side effects to this medicine? And then she's ticking them off. And then I ask, well, what, what is, uh, is, is it common for a woman who may have had a bout of breast cancer on one side for it to recur or have a bout of, of breast cancer on the other side? She said, immediately, she said, uh, it happens in about 10% of the cases. And, and which Christie replied, and said, well, I feel very special. So, <laughs> so immediately, we in, in Western culture, when we hear the word knowledge, we think somebody, we think book learn, learning, right? Now, there is a, that is a component 
Uh, but what Barclay is telling us that knowledge is something more. He says that it is almost intuitive and instinctive to grasp the truth when we see it and hear it. For that, you see, every human being is eminently qualified. Uh, Paul says in the first chapter of the book of Romans that the world lives under the sentence of condemnation because they have denied what can be clearly seen. So there is a sense in which, and, and I don't know if I agree with this completely, but the Roman Catholic Church teaches that in the fall, in the Garden of Eden, which we read a, a little bit about this morning, in the fall that man's will fell, but his ability to reason did not. Now that's, and there's an argument that ensues in the history of the church between St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, whether that is true or not. Uh, Martin Luther in the Reformation, for me, settles it when he says reason is a whore. In other words, reason is a wax nose that can be used to justify uh, whatever truth you are promoting. So knowledge is not just education. There are, there are some people who have never had the benefit of an Ivy League education. They've not gone to private schools. That's not saying that everybody who went to private school and went to a Ivy League school actually got an education, but it was available to them. There are some people who are gifted with insight, and Paul is here t telling us that this is in some way, here, we'll, we'll put it this way, it is in some way related to your relationship with Christ. If the fullness of God in Christ, and then you are in Christ yourself, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, then there is, is in some sense a way that, uh, you understand the truth when you hear it, when you see it intuitively and instinctively. That's why in Pentecostalism, we often disagreed with uh, the way sometimes that it walked itself out. But that doesn't mean that Pentecostals are stupid. It doesn't mean that at all. Doesn't mean that Baptists are stupid. Doesn't mean that Alan Ellis is stupid just because um, he, he only went to a, th a three-year Bible school. There is a treasure, a suppository of knowledge and wisdom, which is in Christ, which is revealed to us upon examination. There are no casual disciples following Christ. If you, if you are going to be a disciple of Christ, you're, you're going to have to confront the matters that face you. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. The casual uh, observer, of course, Paul was not. 
But he goes on, Barclay goes on to say, but Sophia, wisdom is the power to confirm and to commend the truth with wise and intelligent argument once it has been intuitively grasped. So Paul, the church is not defined as the church solely on the basis of you can only be a member of the church if you're really smart, if you're intellectual, if you've been educated, if you've, and, and this is one of the things uh, which has been decried in the history of the church in America, uh, the, the development of seminaries, where we, we substituted an educated clergy we thought that an educated clergy was the answer. Uh, education obviously has its place and its point, but if you, edu- if you educate yourself out of the faith, then you're not contributing to the body of Christ. Sophia is the power to confirm and to commend the truth with wise and intelligent argument Uh, Once it has been intuitively grasped, gnosis or knowledge is that by which a man grasps the truth. So knowledge, and and this is what the reformers were, were teaching, that salvation by faith alone through grace involved that the first step was gnosis or knowledge. You had to hear the story of Jesus. There were, there were certain, we would say, historical facts about uh, the life, ministry, and person of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that had to be communicated. Uh, Paul, again, in Galatians, says, Christ, who was crucified before your very eyes. In other words, the preaching of the cross involves that. This, uh, there, there are some fundamentals of the Christian faith that have to be communicated. Gnosis is that by which a man grasps the truth. Sophia wisdom is that by which a man is enabled to give a reason for the hope that is in him. Yeah, I, I want to say this right now. Information is not synonymous with meaning. Information, in fact, is not meaning. How many of us have sat in a class before? For me, it was chemistry to some degree and physics to a great degree, where the teacher was very smart, Mr. Penta, very intelligent. He always wore a white short sleeves shirt with a black tie and a pocket pen protector. Remember those things, those plastic things? And it was always full. He was, he, he was very knowledgeable. He knew I had a, a teacher in uh, algebra who was the same way when I went into trigonometry. He could not, he could do the formula for you, but he could not explain the process so you could understand how he got. I know that's the answer, but uh, I, I don't see how you get from where I'm at to where that answer is. Gifted teachers then 
are not only knowledgeable, but they have a way of showing you how will this knowledge benefit you as a human being. So information is not the same as meaning. We can sometimes say something to someone else, and then uh, we might say, this happens in employer-employee relationships uh, all the time. I have a friend who runs a foreign car company. They fix, repair, buy, sell, blah, blah, blah. He's hired more people. Now, it's, it is a management overload problem because he actually needs a shop manager just to focus on, do you understand, first of all, what we are asking you to do? Do you know how to fix the problem, what we've asked you to do? Here's the problem. Do you know how to fix it? Do you have uh, the skill level? Do you have the parts that you need? Can, can you responsibly take this from point A to point Z and end up with a finished product for which we can charge the customer $10,000 and they'll be happy to write out a check. So all the time then in management problems, it is, didn't you understand what I said? What is this? What about this problem right now? Don't you understand? Or, why did this get, and I'll use a charitable term, why did this get so messed up? Of course, mechanics have a variety of ways of saying this. It's, it's the same problem. Oh, I didn't, oh, I didn't catch that. Or, oh, I didn't understand. That's what you were asking me to do. Information then may have been communicated. And if you're like me, I bought many car repair manuals, Haynes car repair manuals. In, uh, Paul gave me a book, a box or two of car repair manuals, which I still have. And they make it sound like, oh, you need to replace the starter. Well, the first thing is you go find a 716 socket, deep socket with an extension, and you remove the three bolts that hold and I did that on a car of mine once, and it took me like three hours. After I did it one time, then I could do it probably in 15 minutes. So knowledge then, uh, information, does not equate equal experience. When you actually begin to do something, then... Uh, the, the mechanic you want is one who is knowledgeable and also experienced because that results in wisdom. So look at what Barclay says next. If, this, if anybody asked me really what the objective or goal of the church would be, it would be this paragraph. He says, so then the real church will have the clear-sighted wisdom which can act for the best in any given situation. We live in a culture right now, the, 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 the culture of the common gaze, where people grab information and use it as a club to bludgeon other people. Uh, 
blah, 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 I believe this. Somebody makes a comment on Facebook, you stupid idiot. What is wrong with you? You've not done your research. Don't you know that this is a, uh, a bold-faced lie? You're being misled. So we hear about misinformation and disinformation. So I decided this morning I would look up what's the difference between misinformation and disinformation. And I found that there's a, a, a third one added to that. It's called malinformation. Misinformation is an unintentional mistake. Oh, Christy, I forgot your birthday. It's October 15th. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. It was unintentional. And she'll look at me just like she's looking at me right now like, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. You, you, are, you are. First of all, let's establish this. You are a liar right now. You're covering up. Right, October the 14th, but if on October the 15th, I came to you and said, Christy, I forgot your birthday, you wouldn't look at me and just say, oh, that, you, you made a mistake. Misinformation is unintentional mistakes. Disinformation is when information is fabricated or deliberately manipulated. Somebody says, oh, I wish you'd preach about something that affects my life right now. This, this, this is where it's at. Malinformation is information fabricated with an intent to harm. With an intent to harm. So it's not enough for the church, Paul is telling the Colossians. It's not enough for you to understand Christ as the hidden treasure of knowledge but also he is the hidden treasure of wisdom. Wisdom, it could be, knowledge is, is knowing something. Wisdom, it might be said, is knowing how to apply what you have come to know as truth. In a way, uh, Berkeley is saying, clear-sighted wisdom which can act for the best in any given situation. In other words, you are not going to use what you know to harm someone else. Should I say that again? You are not going to use what you know to bludgeon someone else. You are not going to use what you know to win an argument at uh, at the cost of another person's uh, resolve. It happens in the church all the time. Those who are sick and wounded, disciples of Christ, instead of, instead of putting in, them in the hospital of Christ and seeing them restored and brought back to health, th this is what we hear John Piper speaking about. Oh, well, I know about her. I know about him, what, what's going on there. And I'm just going to, you know what? Somebody needs to tell them what's going on. Somebody really you know, the pastor's not going to do it, then I'm going to do it. Paul, in the companion book to Colossians, Ephesians 4.15, we are to speak the truth in love. That phrase is an enigmatic phrase to me. And then yesterday, it seemed while I was weed eating, I received a revelation. How do we speak the truth in love? We speak the truth in love by focusing on the love part. 
if you love people correctly, thoroughly, as Christ loved the church, then what comes out of your mouth will not violate that law of love. You, you wonder why the church is un, under such hateful at times, a critical gaze, why people say, oh, I wouldn't go to church uh, because that, it's, ch- church is just, you know, full of hypocrites. We've heard it all. Full of hypocrites. All I, do, all I want is money. Uh, Frankie Shaver, Frank Shaver, Francis Shaver's son, says that the, the entire evangelical church in America is all about, all that it is interested in is raising money and as a result, acquiring political power. To speak the truth in love, to speak the truth in love means that I am so obsessed with living in love that only those things that will come out of my mouth automatically, inevitably will be spoken in love. If I hear myself saying things, as we all do, that would not qualify as speaking the truth in love, it is because I, I have left love's work undone in my life somewhere. So then the real church will have the clear-sighted wisdom which can be for the best, which can act for the best in any given situation, the wisdom which can instinctively recognize and grasp the truth when it sees it, and the wisdom which can make the truth intelligible to the thinking mind and persuasively commend it to others. What you know should be used in a way to empower yourself and others in the way of love. I love this quote by Martin Luther King Jr. Nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. That's, that's what he had to face in his life. He had to face in his life sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity from the evangelical church in America who said that being black was the curse of Ham. You cannot find any substantial, any scriptural justification for that viewpoint. But it was, in fact, common, particularly in evangelical churches in the South, for that to be the the common understanding. Black people are not really people. They're creatures. Now, the evangelical churches in the South would say, we are a well-informed, Bible-believing congregation. Where was the wisdom? Where was the wisdom? So look, this is my statement. Knowledge without wisdom is often exercised in presumption. You may be right. As Piper says, you may be right. But, but first of all, he says, before 
you get all up in arms about a stick hanging out of somebody else's eye. I I love how he says this. Consider that log (laughs) that's hanging out of your own eye that is going to hit them in the head. Don't you love this? Don't you love it when theologians just use common everyday? This is why the people love to hear Jesus speak. They just use everyday common language. I can understand that. A stick in somebody else's eye and a big old log hanging out of my own eye, right? First of all, I need to deal with what? The log in my own eye before I say, you know, I'm qualified, surgically speaking. I've been to school and everything to take that stick out of your eye. You are. Yes, I operate just on the other eye that does not have the log sticking out of it. So just ignore this big log that I have hanging out of. <laughs> How many would go to that eye surgeon? If your eye surgeon came into the room and he's dragging behind him this huge two by four that's grown out of one eye, would you say, oh, let's see what's going to happen here. You expect the practitioner to practice what they've come to know as the truth. Through this statement, knowledge without wisdom is adequate for the powerful. That's what we saw in the South. Uh, Jim Crow white culture was predominant in the South and... Black folk, just if they understood it, I, I don't have anything against, they would, people would say, I don't have anything against Negros, but I do not want to walk on the same side of the street as they do. And so black people said, okay, I guess if we're going to get along with white people in the same town, when I see Mr. Joe coming down on one side of the sidewalk, I will cross over to the other side of the sidewalk because this is what has come to be expected in the Jim Crow South. Even now, the evangelical church, the white evangelical church in America is being excoriated because it it did not deal with the latent racism. Knowledge without wisdom is adequate for the powerful. So if you're white, you're in a small town in the South, life is good. White people say, you know what? I I just wish we could go back to life as it was in the 50s. You know why you want to go back to life as it was in the 50s as a white person? Because it was good for white people. You say, well, it wasn't so good for me, and I grew up in poverty, and we didn't have a whole lot of money. Still, we, we, we don't, white privilege is a reality. We, if you're white, like I am, you don't see it. I remember <laughs> not too long ago, Christy and I were invited to George Draper swearing in as, what was it? Was that for the chief justice or uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court? So they had a reception for him down at the uh, athletic club downtown, sponsored by the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. 
Christine and I walk in, and just about everybody's black. Well, we expected that. And George is there, and his Morehouse College buddies are there. And there is like, it's like a fraternity, sorority party all mixed into one like 40 years later. Well, when I walked in immediately, I said, oh, so take a lesson on white privilege. This is what it feels like to be black and to walk into a room where there's the vast majority of people are white. Last yesterday, the neighbor up on the hill has some kind of pool party going on. They had a DJ. You could stand on a parking lot and hear every word of every song distinctly, every cuss word too. The neighbor says to me, Alan, did you change your taste in music? See, that's one white guy talking to another white guy. And we both kind of laughed, right? Because I knew what he was saying. We know what we know, and we don't want to be messing it up with what you call wisdom. The answer to the solution for the race problem is in the church of Jesus Christ. I would be more specific. The answer to the race problem, the solution to the race problem is in Christ. Knowledge without wisdom is adequate for the powerful, but wisdom is essential to the survival of the subordinate. Remember the story in the Bible about King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. There's a dispute that breaks out between two women over a child, a baby. Remember that? And it ends up in King Solomon's court. Both women are claiming to be the child's legitimate mother. King Solomon's solution was what? Here's the wisest man who ever lived. Bring me a sword. We'll just divide the child in half, give one half to this woman and one half to the other. One woman said, yeah, no big deal. The other woman said, let her have it. See, so the subordinate, the true mother in that case, was saying, here, here I am dealing in a situation where wisdom is, is going to be my only solution. She didn't stand there arguing for the child. She just simply said, let the other woman have the child. I would rather see the child live with that woman than for the child to die. I'll close with this uh, this morning. We do not advance the march of human progress or the common good when we abandon Christ. There is a move on in some circles right now that says that Christianity has had its day. It is now passe. It is now time for human beings to move on to some other solution. That Christianity has created more problems than it has solved. That Christianity has been inevitably a struggle between the powerful and the weak. Uh, I'm not there. I don't think that I will ever be there. 
Paul tells us that wisdom and knowledge, the treasures, if we are going to experience life in the fullness in which God intended, are hidden not, they're hidden from the common gaze, but they have been revealed to those who will examine they are in Christ. In Christ. Berkeley says the truth of Christianity is not a secret which is hidden, but a secret which is revealed. And it doesn't take a whole lot of education or intelligence to examine it. If you examine the claims of Christ, you will grasp the truth. And when you grasp the truth, hopefully it will be in a covenant community that will apply the wisdom of that truth to your life in a loving way. Here we are, the marks of a faithful church, courageous hearts, hearts knit together in love. And thirdly, people equipped with every kind of wisdom. Thank you, Father, that in fact all these gifts are ours. We ask, Father, that even as the colic said today, that you would give us the ability to think the right things so that we could be guided into doing the right things. Help us to step away from the misinformation, the disinformation, the malinformation. So common in the culture of the common gaze. the unexamined truth that feeds our bigotry, the unexamined truth that feeds our racism, the unexamined truth that feeds our political views. We hear your words echoing down through the centuries. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Help us to grasp that truth, to handle the truth with wisdom and care and love, and to in turn speak the truth to a culture that is dying, that is dying, destroying itself, destroying self-destructing, Lord, all around us. We ask it in his name, the one who loved us and gave his life for us. In Christ's name we pray.